It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Jason, today is a day that I've been waiting for quite some time. Should I be scared or excited or how should I feel? I'm feeling mixed emotions when you say that. Well, that's good. I feel like you're going to lay something really, really fucking bizarre on me right now. It's either going to be being like, really? That's crazy. Or it's going to be like, oh, okay. Like, I feel like my reaction is going to be one or the other. Well, first of all, can you take a guess about what it's going to (sighs) be? Like, where did your mind go? I'm just curious. My mind went to like, it's National Bedbug Day. And like, we're going to talk about bedbugs. <laughs> like, we're going to do a whole episode on bedbugs. No, no, it's going to start off as bedbugs. Then, then we're going to talk about the proper hygiene, sleep hygiene. Like you would spin it into like, it would be National Bedbug Day, but then we'd talk about sleep hygiene. That's the first thing that my mind went to. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm thinking about how much I want to travel right now. And when I travel or you and I have done road trips in the past, I'll be like, oh, we need to be mindful of bedbugs. My mind is very tangential. Well, now I kind of want to talk about that. Oh, because- God. Oh, God. What have I done? <laughs> you brought what this have I done? Yourself. Jesus. I mean, I actually thought that was kind of interesting how we went on that road trip and we brought that bed bug spray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, sleep hygiene in general like, is something I'm much more mindful of, you know, just in general, like preparing one's environment for sleep. But especially while traveling, I feel like it's another level of mindfulness, you know, from the bed bug spray to bringing your own pillowcase cases to the last road trip we did in San Francisco at the beginning of 2020, where you were so kind as to bring a couple of white noise machines. And that made a huge difference. This is a totally different direction than you wanted to go. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I was not planning this whatsoever. But we take tangents because these are conversations and it's very real. Yeah. I mean, basically, welcome to our life. If you are a first-time listener to This Might Get Uncomfortable, welcome. Welcome to our podcast and our brand, Wellevator. Can you imagine if this was the first episode they ever listened to? Okay. These guys are all over the place. I want to say, though, that this podcast, I feel, is simply a mirror and a glance into our normal everyday conversations anyway. You know, When Whitney and I are together, and not in front of a microphone. This is just how we speak to one another. We're very tangential. We are passionate about many, many different subjects of life and figuring ourselves out and going deeper. And so the tangentialness of this podcast is just a reflection of how we live our lives. Absolutely. And I'm also just kind of trying to pass the time while the construction across the street quiets down. So if you hear a lot of beeping in the background, my apologies, but that's also real life. This is yeah, this is real and raw. With the podcast, we've kind of created a studio for ourselves, but now that we're in quarantine, that's not an option. So we record at home and my favorite place to record right now is in front of this window because it gets lots of natural light. There's interesting things outside that I can look at to remind me of what life was like before all of this. Well, today is National Shrimp Scampi Day, Jason. Oh, God. Well, you know what? (laughs) If there could be anything more ridiculous than National Bed Bug Day. And see, the thing is, though, what the hell is this going to parlay into? How do we use this as a jump off point for wellness and mental health and self-development? I'm very curious to see 
what your segue is going to be from National Shrimp Scampi Day. Like, hmm, where is she going to parlay this? Hmm. The backstory for the listener is that we have this spreadsheet where we write down ideas. We keep track of our episodes. We try to stay organized, even though most of our episodes are very tangential. And improvised. Yeah, very improvised. But they usually start somewhere and then they go somewhere else. And I sent this spreadsheet to Jason and he saw I had taken a note of National Shrimp Scampi Day. And he was like, you were really pissed off. You were annoyed. I was like, Whitney, are you fucking serious right now? Like, we're National Shrimp fucking Scampi Day? For real? (laughs) Like, that was my initial reaction of, and you're like, it was a joke. And now here we are talking. Here we are. (laughs) And that's why I just was starting to, I wanted to start this off with some laughter because it is a complete joke. I have no intention on doing a whole episode of National Shrimp Scampi Day, Jason. Oh my God. Can I ask a very honest question? Because I feel like a lot of, well, not a lot, but a small percentage of the episodes we have used as a, a national day to parlay into Earth Day, obviously, or significant things that we do want to talk about and share with the listener. But who pushed that through? Who was like, you know what? I really think that shrimp scampi, not just shrimp, but the dish shrimp scampi needs to have its own day. Make it so. Make it so. Like, who approved that? How does one get a national day approved? I honestly feel like it's probably not that hard. I'm going to look that up, but I am really curious. I would like National Orange Cat Day. I'm a fan of orange cats. I have an orange cat. I rescued an orange cat two days ago, which we could talk about that or not. But I have a thing for orange cats. I love cats in general. I am a cat dad. I've been a cat lover my whole life. But orange cats in particular, probably because it's a cat and my favorite color is orange. And when you put those two things together, it's magic. So I would heretofore like to declare October 17th, National Orange Cat Day. Bazam. Why October 17th? Is that his birthday? It should be his birthday. Uh, His birthday, I think, was in April. So we're probably already past Julius. My cat, Julius. My cat, Orange Orange Julius Bartholomew Robel. I believe his birthday was in early April. So we've passed it. Happy third birthday, Julius. Love you, buddy. Well, there's now a helicopter flying around. This has been a wonderful time to record. But I'm trying to find the history of National Shrimp Scampi Day. And I promise that we're not going to talk about this much longer, but you did pique my curiosity. Like, who came up with this? But it's funny because there are a bunch of websites that are like summarizing each of the national days and they take them all very seriously. Like nationaltoday.com has actual activities you can do to celebrate shrimp scampi. And it's like, create your own dish. Eat out at a restaurant, invite some friends over. I mean, I really would love to know. I'd love to meet somebody who actually celebrates this day. And I will say before we move on from this really silly topic, we could give a shout out to one of our favorite dishes of all time. I knew this was coming. I mean, why not? It's actually an important thing to just talk about because people might be listening thinking, I thought I was listening to two vegans talk. We are vegan, yes. Right. And vegans can still eat shrimp because there is delicious plant-based shrimp, such as, Jason. Okay, so I want to just preface this by saying that I think that for all of the food innovations and culinary creativity and food technology, especially in the last decade that has come out, that has given us incredible versions of plant dairy, milks, cheeses, spreadable yogurts, spreadable cream cheese. I mean, we could go on and on. I think for me, the one category that I have seen that has needed 
the most creative attention and technological development has been plant-based seafood. There hasn't been a lot that's necessarily blown me away. However, there's a restaurant that has been here in Southern California for, I think it's been around for maybe close to 15 years now. They have one location in Fountain Valley and one in downtown Los Angeles called Olak. And the chef there, Chef Ito, has taken a vow of silence for well over a decade. He doesn't speak. He gestures and he'll he'll write notes to you. He's taken a vow of silence to honor the voiceless animals, the billions of voiceless animals that are killed in the meat and dairy industries every single year. So he's taken this vow of silence. This man as a chef, as a culinary artist, is one of the most innovative, forward-thinking chefs I've ever met. I'll say he's a hero of mine. There's very few chefs that I will put on a pedestal of like the innovation of this human being is remarkable. He has created from scratch. This is a from scratch recipe because you can buy bagged vegan shrimp. He does this from scratch. It is a yam, yam, the root vegetable. He takes yam and he makes vegan shrimp. I believe it's yam and konjac root. And he'll combine yam and konjac root. And it is the most realistic in terms of the flavor, but the mouthfeel, like that tender, dense rubberiness of shrimp. It is the closest thing, legit. Whitney and I have taken friends there who are not vegan, friends like Ross and a bunch of people we've taken to. Shout out to our friend Ross. They'll try it and go like, I can't believe how good this is. Hands down, it's the best vegan shrimp I've ever had. And carnivores, paleo people, whoever we've taken there, they try it and it's like their mind is blown. So to the dear listener, if you've never been to Olak, especially if you're in the midst of the pandemic listening to this, you can maybe get takeout. I don't know if they're available for takeout, but when the restaurants do reopen, go there, get the yam shrimp. It is absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I wish they would sell it in stores, Whitney. I wish they would actually have that in like the frozen section so we could buy it because it's unbelievable. And as I finish this roll, this tangent, I'm bolstered by the fact that that category is getting more attention because we know that through overfishing, there are certain scientists that estimate that the majority of sea life could be wiped out of the oceans by around 2050 because we're overfishing, we're wasting it, we're killing tens of billions, literally tens of billions of sea animals every year for our food and our products. So having plant-based alternatives where we're not decimating the populations of ocean life, and moreover, one of the reasons that I personally gave up seafood all those years ago when I was in my plant-based journey was because I was reading so many studies talking about the mercury content and the PCBs and the dioxins and the neuro and endocrine disruptors in seafood. And I thought that's a whole mess of like heavy metals and toxins I don't want in my body. So I gave up fish initially, not for ethical reasons, but because I saw the high levels of heavy metals and toxicity and didn't want to put that in my body. So the plant-based seafoods like this shrimp out there, high in protein, high in minerals, do not have the heavy metals or the toxins or the PCBs. and it's giving our oceans a break by not supporting the overfishing practices. Okay, rant over. I'm really glad that you're on a rant because <laughs> I'm just laughing to myself at how loud it got all of a sudden. It's like, oh, you wanted to record a podcast? We're just going to do all this construction and the police are going to fly a helicopter around your home for the next 20 minutes. I'm sure it has nothing to do with me. It's nothing personal, but you know, life does this sometimes. I just want to back up what Jason said, and I did find out that Alok has temporarily closed, and I really hope that it's truly temporary because it would be such a shame to lose their incredible food permanently. And it also is possible that restaurants like this are going to have to transition and get more creative, and maybe their food will be available in grocery stores or in a different form. And the other day, I went to this really cool 
entirely vegan grocery store called Besties. And we're going to link to all of these companies we're talking about in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Or you can go to podcast.wellevator.com. When you find each individual episode, there are links to everything that we talk about. And Besties is really cool. They have huge selection of really interesting plant-based foods. And I decided to try a shrimp that they had in their frozen section. And I went in, I don't know why I did this to myself, but I went in thinking that it could come close to Chef Ito's shrimp and it does not at all. (laughs) So I've tried a lot of different vegan shrimp alternatives out there and none of them compare to Chef Ito's work. So I think that there are some people that create very, very unique foods, and Ito is certainly one of them with that. So I think that's a good... Well, I would say lastly, the whole reason I brought up National Shrimp Scampi Day, Jason, is simply because you like to pronounce shrimp in a very interesting way, and you have a interesting tattoo I thought maybe you'd want to bring up before we move on from this topic and never address it again. Well, if I may, I do have a few more things to add. So I do pronounce shrimps squimps. And it's because I dated someone years ago, many, many years ago. We had an inside joke about squimps. And so I have a tribute tattoo to her that has a, her holding a shrimp. And everyone's like, what is that? A lobster? It's not a lobster. It's a giant shrimp. Okay. I have to explain this. It's the weirdest tattoo I have. And it's right on your chest. Yeah. I've also had like a couple laser sessions on it. But let me just say this about tattoos. Getting a laser tattoo session, removal session is 10 times more painful than actually getting the tattoo. So what I've thought about, because it literally is one of the, it's one of the most excruciating physical pains I've ever had is getting a laser tattoo removal. It's unbelievable how painful it is. So I've actually thought about getting a large chest piece covering my chest because I talked to a couple tattoo artists who specialize in cover-ups and they're like, yeah, dude, it's going to be cheaper and less painful for you just to cover it up. So that's actually one of the things I'm thinking about doing is getting a chest piece to cover it up. But I wanted to say this, Wit, in terms of plant-based seafoods again for... Can I just pause you for one second? Why? Because we've spent 15 minutes talking about National Shrimp Scampi Day. You thought this was going to be a joke. It was, but we've parlayed it into giving people all of the reasons why it is important to eat less seafood for the ecological reasons, for not bombarding your body with mercury and PCBs and dioxins, to all the reasons, right? I wanted to give a quick shout out to two other companies besides Chef Ito and Olak that are really doing some awesome innovations in terms of plant-based seafood. One is our dear, dear friends and brothers, Chad and Derek Sarno, and their company called Good Catch Foods. They have plant-based tuna. They have three or four different flavors of shelf-stable packaged tuna that is super high in protein. I think it's a blend of like fava fava beans. I don't know what the blend is. I think it's soy protein and bean protein, but they have several different flavors. I have traveled with it anytime I go on a plane and I just need to rip open a package of tuna. It's great. I like to spice it up though with you know some mayonnaise or some mustard, make a tuna sandwich, but Good Catch Foods, which we will also link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. Great company. They have national distribution at Whole Foods Market across the country. The other one that I want to give a shout out to is Sophie's Kitchen. They have some cool products. They have a vegan salmon, like a, I think they have like a smoked salmon alternative that's actually really good. I also believe that's made with konjac root. And they have shrimp. They have shrimp too. And I would say- and crab cakes, don't they? Yep. The crab, I really like the crab cakes. Their breaded shrimp is actually one of the better, if not the best that I found in stores. Yes. Their shrimp, their crab cakes, and also 
I want to link to that company, but also there's a couple of recipes for homemade vegan crab cakes made from hearts of palm that are phenomenal. So I will find those recipes and we will also link to those in the show notes if you want to make vegan crab cakes from scratch at home because they're phenomenal and super easy. So again, didn't expect to riff on this for 17 minutes and 20 seconds, but we have somehow magically improvised this into a useful, informative episode. <laughs> Hopefully. Somebody might have turned it off the second that we said have. National Shrimp yeah. Scampi Day. They're like, I'm done with this episode. Forget that. That's These true. weirdos. They may never come back. We may have lost somebody for life. These are the risks we take on This Might Get Uncomfortable. These are the risks we take. Well, I'm going to move into another national day. And I this one actually is not a joke, Jason. I think that this is actually incredibly timely, which is why I decided to bring it up. Tomorrow, April 30th, is actually National Adopt-A-Shelter Pet Day. Oh, yeah. how perfect. I know. This is great. So I thought it was a really great time to talk about adoption, which I think that we've dabbled in on the podcast here or there. Our focus of this podcast is certainly mostly on wellness. And if you haven't heard us say this before, we take a very holistic approach to well-being. So it's not just about taking supplements and getting sleep and eating the right food, drinking water, exercising. Those are all certainly important. But when we say holistic, we mean that a lot of our choices in life, if not every single choice that we make in life, ultimately will come down to our well-being and it'll impact our well-being. And animals actually have a massive effect on our well-being yes, as well as the well-being of the world. And when it comes to making an adoption, you can actually make a huge difference on the well-being of an animal as well. So Jason, I'd love for you to share your recent story and then we can talk more about why adoption is important and how you can celebrate this day, how you can find a shelter animal. And I just have some really interesting statistics for this day. So I thought it was a great topic for us. Yeah, I think it's wonderful, Wit, because this is something that we're extremely passionate about for all the reasons you mentioned. Number one, to give homeless and at-risk shelter animals a chance at living a happy, healthy, and protected life. And also just sharing some stories from my life of all the animal companions that I have at my home and specific situations where I was facing depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and how they helped from a mental and emotional wellness perspective, which is obviously a foundational element of the podcast here that we love to talk about. So to me, I'll share a little bit about a recent story. A couple of days ago, I got a message from our close friend, Brittany Littleton, who runs our favorite animal rescue organization here in Los Angeles called Little Love Rescue. We will link to their Instagram and their website in the show notes if you want to check out their adoptable animals, of which they have dozens and dozens and dozens. The reason they have so many now is because of the pandemic that's going on and all the aftershocks of COVID-19. With so many people losing their jobs and becoming financially unstable, people have been literally abandoning their animals. And when I say abandoning, I mean putting them on street corners, dumping them in boxes in front of the veterinary clinic, dropping them off at Brittany's doorstep because they know that she's an animal rescuer. So there's just been a marked increase, at least here in Los Angeles, of people literally abandoning their animals. It's extremely sad and unfortunate with the state of things financially and economically, but it is what it is. So first of all, she has dozens of adoptable animals right now. If you are looking to foster or adopt a companion, I just wanted to put that out there. A couple days ago, she sends me a message that there's a cat down in Garden Grove, which is about a 45-minute drive from downtown Los Angeles near where I live. And she said there's this cat that is 
bleeding and injured and afraid it's stuck in a corner. A friend of hers had messaged her a video who lives down there. Can anyone go and transport this cat and bring it to the vet? And I said, like, I dropped everything. You and I were actually working that day, Whitney, and I had things on my to-do list. And I was like, you know what? There's nothing on my to-do list that is more important than me making sure that this cat does not suffer and die alone. So I got in my car, I drove 90 miles an hour down to Garden Grove and found this woman who, you know, had alerted everyone to this cat and the cat was shaking and kind of crouched in this corner behind this Chinese restaurant. And there was a trail of blood leading up to this cat. It was covered in blood, covered in urine, covered in feces. And I'm like, oh God, this is a bad situation. So I put my gloves on. I got the cat carrier out. I approached it very slowly and was like, it's okay, buddy. You know, I I was making sure that I wasn't freaking out. I was making sure that my energy was calm and loving so that it would respond to that. And I was just breathing with it and petting it on the head. And it let me gently pick him up. It's a he, by the way. He didn't resist. He didn't try and bite or claw. And I put him into the cat carrier and zipped him up. It was actually really easy. And I drove him another 45 minutes to the Sherman Oaks Animal Hospital where they work with Little Love Rescue. Basically, the agreement they have with the rescue organization is for any high-risk animals that need surgery or procedures to save their lives, they'll do the procedures and the surgery and then bill them later right, to make sure that the animals are cared for. So it turns out that this sweet little boy has a broken pelvis and had internal bleeding. He was urinating pure blood. So he had a ruptured bladder. So he's actually in surgery. And at the day that we're recording this, he's in surgery today. I'm going to check in on him later. The final bill came to $3,500. So we're actually raising money to pay back the vet right now, where a lot of people are donating because Little Love Rescue is a 501c3 nonprofit. So in 24 hours, we raised half the money. So we are still at the time of this recording, still looking to donate to Little Love Rescue because they have thousands of dollars of vet bills of animals that they've rescued. So if anyone wants to donate who's listening to this, their Venmo is Little Love Rescue. They have a PayPal account. They have a Cash App account. It's all Little Love Rescue. We'll put all those links in the show notes. But Little Love Rescue is near and dear to my heart. And I know it is to yours, Whitney, because we've known Brittany for many, many years, almost a decade now. And we know how hard she works for the animals. It's a two-person operation, very, very small. And also, I adopted my dog, Bella, and my kitten, Julius, from them. So I do whatever I can to help them out. And there are just so many animals suffering. There are so many animals that are battling for their lives right now. And if we can give them good homes and we can donate to these animal rescue organizations, it's not something that I do professionally, but it's something I'm extremely passionate about. And if I can donate time, energy, and money to help these animals, it's like it's something I have to do. It's like so deep in my heart and soul to do this. So I know that was a long description of my rescue mission, but it's something that in my heart, I felt a lifelong connection to animals. And it's something that no matter what, until the day I die, I'm going to do everything I can to help them. That's beautiful. And it's so interesting because I think that there's in general a lack of awareness about what's really going on. And I've had a lot of eye-opening experiences myself when it comes to animal adoptions. And the more I learn, the more passionate I become about it. And it's also really tempting to judge people for not adopting animals, right? And then there's also the case of you, for example, Jason, you've rescued five of them, but I don't know if any of them have technically come from a shelter, have they? No, none of them have technically come from a shelter. If I think about it, out of the five that I have, the original two, the OGs that I call them Lynx and Claudia, they were rescued from a woman who literally goes to the highest risk shelters in LA, and she will extract the animals that are scheduled to be euthanized. 
and she'll adopt, she'll literally pay the fee and take them and take them to her house. And then she sends out emails to her close friends and her network of people saying, I have these new animals. I just adopted them. They were going to be euthanized. So Lynx and Claudia, my first two, I just went to her house, who was a dear friend of one of our best friends, Ellie Keats. So that was me adopting them from her house, this woman's house. And then Figaro, the third one, was just rescued literally off the street. I picked him up off the street. He was thrown out of his house and abandoned by his family. Julius was adopted from Little Love Rescue. And then Bella was adopted from Little Love Rescue. So yeah, none of my current companions did I actually physically go to a shelter and rescue them. They were all from rescue organizations or from the street. So animals can come from so many different places. And of course, people can choose to get them from breeders. And I think it's something that is it's similar in a lot of ways to your food choices. It's about raising your awareness about where things come from. And we talked about this on another episode about violence and how it really takes a lot of awareness to realize that animals are not just on this planet for us to consume, for us to use, for us to have for our pleasure. And one thing that I've worked on over the years is avoiding the use of the word pet unless I need to. Yes. And I think we can talk about that. We can go in a lot of different directions here. I mean, it is National Adopt-A-Shelter Pet Day and whatever that means. I don't know who exactly came up with this yet. I'm going to read a bunch of different sources. I think it's really good point to start on. And it's all about what the meaning means to you. So the reason I stopped using the word pet is because I'm trying to be very conscious of my relationships with animals. So I chose to go vegan, which means I'm avoiding animal products at all costs. You know, if you really dive deep into our consumerism, it's actually almost impossible to completely avoid using animals because animal products show up in all sorts of things like tires are a big thing that comes to mind. What else comes to mind for you, Jason, in ways that we inadvertently use animal products in our lives? Kind of took the first choice out of my mind because being such a car enthusiast, it is one of those conundrums ethically where I know that animal fat and animal products are used in the galvanization process of creating a lot of rubber for tires. Not every manufacturer uses it. I think years ago, I remember my friend Gary Yarovsky telling me that that Michelin had specific models of their tires that didn't use animal products in the galvanization process. But I think overall, if we talk about automobiles, there's a lot of aspects of products, you know, perhaps the shift knob on your car, like I don't have leather seats in my car, but there are pieces, leather pieces inside of my car that I'm a little bit like, ah, I wish that wasn't there. The auto industry is one of those things where as a vegan, it's very, very challenging sometimes to find a fully, not only leather-free option, but a fully animal-free option. Uh, Bless Tesla. He's an incredible Tesla owner, and I'm a huge, huge fan. I hope to have one soon as well. And the thing that I loved was last year, they announced that their Model 3 and their Model Y, their brand new SUV, would have completely leather-free options. It doesn't mean that there's not, again, animal products in the tires or perhaps in some of the fluids in the car. But the fact that a company like Tesla is having two of their full product lines, the 3 and the Y, be leather-free, I think is a huge step forward. But in terms of other things, gosh, I know that sometimes there can be things in homeopathic medicines and supplements. This is another thing that is super important that I've actually made mistakes by not label reading is sometimes when I've taken homeopathic medicine or uh, supplements, I neglected to see that there was some derivative of lactose in those pills, or perhaps there was gelatin in the capsules. 
So the supplement industry and the homeopathic medicine industry is another area where you got to do your research. And if you're looking to avoid animal products completely, you got to read labels. I've made the mistake of assuming and not being a strident label reader. And oftentimes I'll get home and be like, oh gosh, dang it, I didn't see the lactose derivative or whatever it is. So you just got to really do your research and read labels. Absolutely. I mean, the same thing can be said about vaccines and not to get into a heated debate about vaccines. But that's one of the reasons that some people choose not to take vaccines or avoid them at all costs is because there's a lot of animal products used in vaccines, depending on what you're taking. So you can actually research and find a, for lack of a better word, cleaner vaccine. There are some different companies that make alternatives. I think you can request them sometimes or go to different doctors or medical facilities to choose vaccine that's more in alignment with yourself. And of course, there's the animal testing that goes on. And so that's been one of the more interesting elements of being vegan. It's really starting to raise your awareness around how we're using animals. And to come back to the pet topic, I read or heard years ago that the word pet can actually be considered not as compassionate because it's implying that that animal is in your life for your purposes. And I'm not sure if I'm being super eloquent about explaining that. Maybe you can dive into this too, Jason. But instead, I was encouraged and have continued to use the term companion animal, which puts me and my dog, Evie, more on the same level. And to me, it's a version of respect. And I've really tried to go out of my way whenever I'm aware of it. I'm not always perfect, right? As Just like Jason Zanes, even as long-term vegans, the two of us still accidentally do, quote, non-vegan things. But I really, with the word pet, try to be very aware of not using it because I want to encourage people to be mindful of their language, conscious language. And for me, a companion animal feels like a very respectful, compassionate term versus pet. It's like, you're my pet. I own you. That's another thing like owner people will use with their animals. Yes. And it's like, you know, you can go to an extreme perspective if you would call it this, but it's like, how is that any different from slavery? Like saying that we own a human being. Why should we be owning an animal versus choosing to bring an animal into our lives to take care of it? Like caretaker could be a better word than owner or more compassionate word, I should say. And companion is another thing. Like you can say, I'm this animal's companion. Like you are taking care of each other. You are loving each other. You are coexisting together. And of course, technically, you're making decisions for this animal. You're choosing what food you give to it. In most cases, you're choosing when this animal goes out for a walk or what cat litter you give them. I mean, we do confine these animals in a lot of ways. And so even that, I try to think about my dog a lot and how she's living. Is she happy? And some people see that as extreme, but I really feel like it's very important is making all these considerations, not just how we're bringing an animal into the world. Are we adopting it? Where is it coming from? Are we choosing to get an animal from the shelter versus from a breeder? But then what does the rest of its life look like? How is that animal living? What food are we giving it? Are we giving it filtered water like we give to ourselves? Are we giving it enough time outside? Does it have enough space? We talked about this again in the other episode about violence. Jason was talking about this bunny or rabbit that lives in his neighborhood. Do you have an update on that story, by the way, Jason? Or have you given that any more thought since we discussed it on the podcast? Two days ago, I walked by, the cage is gone and the bunny is gone. No. Mm-hmm. Whoa. No clue. It's gone. 
So I don't know. I mean, my mind could go to a million different places, but as we like to practice the state of being present to things, I have no idea. Did they leave him inside? Did they just move the cage to a different part of the yard? Did they eat him? Did they give him away? I have no idea. I have no clue, but the bunny's not in the location where he usually is in his hutch. Not a cage, rather. It's a hutch. So I don't know. I have no clue. It also, they had him in kind of like a really sunny spot. So again, it could be a million different possibilities, but the bunny is AWOL. He is absent without leave. I don't know where he went. (laughs) Well, it sounded like you wanted to chime in on the word pet. I do. Yeah. And I think this goes, you mentioned conscious languaging, and I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Danny Katz, and her wonderful book that we'll link to in the show notes that talks all about the energetics behind the meaning we assign to words. And the euphemisms and the colloquialisms and essentially the vibration and the energy of the language we use based on the meaning we assign. And I think to me, if I use the word pet, it's what I do to my companion animals. I pet them on the head. I stroke them. I give them love. But to refer to them as a pet, to just compound what you said, Whitney, it feels as if I am placing them on a level that is beneath me and I am their overlord. That's how I feel when I use that word, like it's my pet. Whereas if I refer to them, as you said, as my companion, or I refer to myself as their parent, I mean, in all seriousness, and some people may understand this, some people may not, neither here nor there to me, but the people that I talk to who get this really get it. I regard them as my children. I love them and care for them and nurture them and caretake them and protect them as if they were my children. That's how I feel about them. I have such a deep connection and soul love for these animals that I feel like I'm their parent in all seriousness. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that I am here to dominate them or oppress them or try and impose my will upon them. Although if they're doing something dangerous, like my boy Lynx breaking into the cabinet and trying to eat chocolate, yeah, to prevent him from dying, I'm going to stop him from eating the chocolate. It doesn't mean they have complete free autonomy all the time. But as a parent would do with a human child, overseeing their safety, making sure they're okay, caring for them, providing food, shelter, and love. So if anything, I feel it's more of a parent role. That's how I feel about them, which to me, people might say, oh, well, you're still placing yourself on a higher level of I don't know, wisdom or oversight, but if I may, I don't see their lives and their importance as being any more or less valuable than a human life. That is one major thing that in in my philosophy of human rights and animal rights, as conscious sentient beings with the ability to exercise will and have free will and experience pain through a central nervous system, I see animals as having basic rights. And to see more and more countries enacting laws that are punitive against people who hurt or kill or enslave animals, it bolsters me to see more countries banning circuses. I know that was a tangent here, but I think humanity is waking up to the fact that animals are sentient, autonomous beings that have the ability to love and experience emotions and feel pain. And if we acknowledge that, that they are sentient beings with the capacity to feel, then we can extend empathy and compassion and rights toward them. And I'm very, very passionate about extending more protections and rights towards animals in general. Absolutely. Well, coming back to this National Day of National Adopt-A-Shelter-Pet Day, I pulled up a website that we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. And there's some good statistics on this. So this is coming from an article posted in May 2019 on basepaws.com, which is a DNA testing website for animals, which I've actually thought would be kind of fun to do, especially for Jason, not knowing like 
the history of his animals. It's just kind of curious, but also seems a little gimmicky. I don't know. Is this like 23 and Me for animals? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. Am I sure he's a tabby? I need to be sure he's a tabby. Well, it's funny because somebody I met recently was talking about the results that she got on this and and she's like listing out all these qualities of her cats and it it seemed a bit exaggerated. Part of me was like, uh, is this a gimmick? Like, is this whatever place that she got her results from, like making up things? I suppose it's a little bit easier when with something like 23andMe because you can go and like connect with relatives and cross-reference things. But when it comes to our animals, it's really hard to go cross-reference them. But another tangent is Jason adopted his dog, Bella, who is a French bulldog, and she was used as a breeder dog. And we have wondered and wish that we could see photos or somehow track down her puppies or just know what she was like as a mother. And that makes us a little sad. We also wish his cat, Figaro, who he adopted when he was about a year old. We really wish that we could have seen Figaro as a kitten. Yeah. The other thing too, just really quickly about looping back to the importance of this phrase, adopt, don't shop. And again, the intention here is not to judge any of the listeners or any friends of ours who have chosen to buy from a breeder. But there are two considerations here you know, that I think about that I want to extend about breeder animals. Number one is if you think about the idea of a puppy or a cat mill, they call them a puppy mill or a cat mill, where they're literally keeping these animals in very close, often close conditions without enough air, ventilation, space to move. They're breeding puppies and cats by the dozens. That is one thing that I am 100% against, equivocally against, is puppy mills and cat mills. It's often horrific conditions, completely profit-driven, not thinking about the well-being of the animals at all. But for smaller breeders, and again, I'm not trying to make a sweeping generalization, but if I think about the free will and the autonomy of a sentient being and someone forcibly impregnating an animal to sell their puppies... What I do as a person is I, of course, from a sense of empathy of one sentient being to another, to think about being in a situation where another being is forced to be impregnated. And yes, they raise their puppies or their kittens for a period of time, but then giving them away just from a gut feeling right now, okay, this is not even a heady thing. There's a part of my gut that goes, there's something not right about that. That's my opinion from a personal perspective, that there's just something that's not okay about forcibly impregnating another being and then selling their offspring for profit. doesn't feel okay to me. It's never felt okay to me. And it's the same feeling I get, if I may, to make a parallel, the dairy industry. There's actually something I'm involved in right now, which is a 14-day non-dairy challenge with the organization Switch for Good. And one of the big points of our ethical consideration around dairy products is that the female cows are forcibly impregnated to give birth, to make milk. But in order to make sure that the milk is sold for profit, as soon as the calves are born, the calves are taken away from their mothers so that they don't suck the milk that's being sold for human profit and human consumption. That There's something to me that is ethically wrong. I'll use that word. It's a hard word. Ethically wrong. That is ethically wrong, ethically dubious about impregnating an animal taking their babies away, and then profiting off the life of that animal. There's something to me that is ethically wrong about that. And I'm on a rant right now, but to get biblical for a second, I think that there's a part of the Bible, because I've read the entire Bible. People, you've read the entire Bible. I was in a philosophy of religion class in college, and I read the entire 
Bible. It was amazing. But one of the parts of the Bible that I think in terms of our human society and human culture that I feel is misinterpreted is the part in Genesis where God gives us dominion over the animals, right? And everyone's like, oh, dominion means domination. And it's like, no, dominion does not mean domination. That I think is one of the most misinterpreted parts of the Bible in terms of, I think, subconsciously how we've been taught to treat animals. Dominion means we can just do what they want. I mean, we can do what we want with the animals, but dominion actually means sovereignty, right? Well, people, oh, we get to control them. We get to do what we want. But I think that we've misused that word. I think that, yes, it could mean domination. It could mean control. But to me, I like to prefer the definition of dominion as oversight or protecting or caretaking rather than controlling them. I know that was a long tangent. Welcome to the podcast if you're just joining us. But I think from how we treat and how we care for our companion animals to how we consume or not consume or support animal products or industries that exploit animals, if we think about them as conscious, sentient beings, I think it is important that we employ a sense of empathy over how they are treated across the board. It is very important that we use empathy. And empathy is a big part of our well-being as well. It's extending to others what we would like to receive ourselves and being aware and getting out of your ego and not being selfish about your decisions. And I think that this is always an important thing to just reflect on is just how we are interacting with any creature out there. And again, we talked about this in a recent episode, which we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com, or you can just look back a few episodes ago and we talked about violence and animal abuse, which can be a really heavy subject matter. We don't get into too much gruesome detail, but we just talked about the importance of getting out of our ego and having consideration for a creature outside of ourselves. Coming back to the website basepause.com where I found a blog post here at, at the time, and again, these numbers change frequently, but according to this website and the Humane Society at the time, 2.7 million adoptable dogs and cats are euthanized in the United States every year. And that is often because abandoned animals arrive at the shelters at a faster rate than they're being adopted. And that's one of the major reasons it's important to consider adopting from a shelter. And I think it's interesting. I thought you were going to touch upon this, Jason, but when you were talking about your adoption and why you had adopted animals, there's often this notion that you won't get a good dog or a good cat or whatever animal you're choosing to adopt if you get it from a shelter. Like there's going to be something wrong. Right. Right. Like they were treated poorly. They were abused or they're not going to be as attractive. They're not going to be purebred. So there'll be something wrong with them. You know, there's all these interesting concepts that people have. And in some cases, it may be true that an animal was abused and then they were brought to a shelter or maybe they had some deformity and somebody didn't want them. But that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. That doesn't mean that they will love you any less or that you'll love them any less. It doesn't mean that they won't be what you define as a good companion animal or a good pet if you choose to use that term. And I think that's really important because I think that's one of the big reasons that people get animals from breeders is they think that they're going to be higher quality. Yeah, no. And that was one of the things with your decision to adopt Bella, Jason, you know, yes. you were very clear that you wanted a French bulldog, but only if you could adopt her. Yes. Yes. And 
I'd love to hear more about your experience with that process and getting a highly coveted animal, such as a French bulldog, which, you know, is a very popular breed of dog. I'm glad you brought this up, Winnie, because I feel much like other misconceptions around adopting animals. There are many of them. This is one of the biggest ones, though, that if I adopt a dog or a cat, they're going to be antisocial. They're going to be overly aggressive. They're going to somehow bring their trauma into my house. There's a lot of deeply, deeply held and baseless misconceptions around shelter animals. So I'm glad you addressed that. In terms of Bella, I did want a French bulldog for a long time. And the thing that I hesitated was that it was incredibly difficult. I remember going on petfinder.com and there were a few Frenchy rescue organizations around the US that I would check in from time to time. Incredibly rare. I mean, obscenely rare to find an adoptable French bulldog. A, because they're one of the most coveted animal breeds currently right now and have been for years. And the breeders are charging pretty unbelievable prices for a purebred puppy. For Bella, who I guess is classified as a pure blue, she's a blue Frenchie, a puppy of her pedigree, I suppose, would range anywhere from three to $5,000 for a puppy. So you can understand from an economic perspective why a breeder would want to use her, which she was, as a breeder dog. I mean, if she has a litter of say, four puppies, and they're sold for $5,000 each, and they're pure blue, that's a $20,000 profit. I mean, you can understand the economics of why a human being would choose to do this for a business. I get it. Again, do I think it's ethical? No. Do I understand why people are doing it? Yes. But for my search for a Frenchie, I knew that from an ethical perspective, A, I didn't want to support that. And B, I'm not shelling out $5,000 for a puppy. Like, fuck no, I'm not doing that. You know, On principle alone, I'm not going to do that. So it turns out that two years ago now, 2018, Whitney sends me, I was driving, I think I couldn't see the text. She sends me this barrage of texts. I see call after call after call. I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, and I know that if I get repeated calls and repeated texts, my natural instinct is something's wrong. So I'm looking at, I'm like, can I, what is happening? So remember I stopped the car and I looked and you're like, you have to call me back right now. Call me back right now. And you sent me this flurry of this little blue Frenchie's face looking like, "Mm, I don't know what's happening here. She had this really weird look on her face. She's like, you have to go to Little Love Rescue right now. And sure enough, on Little Love Rescue, we go back to the beginning of this episode, our favorite rescue organization where I adopted my kitten Julius from a year prior had Bella, this pure blue Frenchie for adoption. It was like one of those moments, of course, where I'm like, ah, I can't do it. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I don't know. Because I had literally just moved into my house. I'd moved into my house not even, I think it wasn't even a month that I was here at my house that I'm in now. And I was like, oh my God, am I ready for a dog? But through talking to you and also realizing how many years I've been talking about it and the rarity of it, I was like, if I don't adopt this Frenchie, I have no idea when. It could be years, years before another Frenchie comes up for adoption. That's how rare it was. So I think it was the combination of realizing I had been calling this in. You were like, if you don't do this, you're crazy. And then also knowing that from Brittany and Little of Rescue, they were caring for this animal. They loved Bella. And of course, the day that I met Bella, she ran right in my lap and started licking me. We have the pictures to prove it. And so immediately I was like, all right, this freaking little gargoyle, you're coming with me. So once I met her, honestly, I was kind of like, all right, this dog's going to be mine. And I think that's such a beautiful story. Something similar happened. Well, I guess I don't know why I said similar, but I remember my mom is somebody that has wanted to get purebred dogs off and on. There was actually, now that I think about it, I think most of our dogs growing up were purebreds. We did go to the shelter frequently. 
there was a, one in Massachusetts called uh, Buddy Dog. And it was always so heartbreaking going in there because you would see all of these sad dogs that looked so lonely and it smelled weird in there. And it was a combination of feeling joyful to see these animals, but also really bad because you go in and you just wish that you could rescue them all. And I don't remember if that's a kill shelter. I don't think it is. But I I just have all these visceral memories of going in there as a child. Totally, totally. What was interesting is I don't know if we ever rescued a dog from there because of what my mom's feelings were. We did once get a dog from a pet store, which he likely came from a puppy bill. But I remember even then, there's this like idea of, oh, it's not going to be as good of a dog because he came from a pet store. You know, it was like, it's just so interesting how it's almost like a classism thing. <laughs> you know, There must be another term for it's not quite species, which is something else we've kind of addressed. But it's like, making judgments about where an animal comes from. It's not that far off from making judgments about where human beings come from, how they were raised, thinking that just because of their family history, that they're going to be a certain way. And it's like a nature versus nurture thing. And it's just so fascinating when you really think about it. But anyways, it was a huge breakthrough for my family and my mother when they adopted a dog. I don't know if it was 10 years ago. Sometime in the past 10 years, my mother rescued a dog from a Florida shelter, and he's become one of her greatest companions of all time. But he went through some sort of abuse. It took him years to fully trust people again. He and my mother bonded very quickly, but it took him a long time to trust any other human being. And now he's a little love bug, but he's had a lot of struggles because of his history. And, you know, Jason has his cat, Figaro, who he rescued off the street. He didn't come from a shelter that we know of. But Jason doesn't know his history of those eight months, what his life was like before that. And you have to be incredibly patient with some of these animals. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to do that. They want to get a fresh, untainted animal that's they can track their entire history. They know where they were from the moment they were conceived to the moment that they hold them in their arms. And I think that the same can be true with human beings deciding to have their own children or to adopt a child. It's that risk of not knowing what somebody's history is and that fear of what's involved. And I think it's an important thing to consider because oftentimes when you choose to adopt an animal, I mean, when you choose to get an animal from a breeder, that could technically mean that one animal is now euthanized as a result. It's not maybe directly as a result of your decision, but in a way, indirectly, it is because that means that there's one other animal that doesn't have a home. Correct. Because you chose to get an animal that was bred. Correct. Exactly. And it's a heavy thing to consider. It's very similar to other aspects of being vegan for me. And we've talked about this throughout podcast episodes, how Jason and I have gone through so much over the years and learning different ways to effectively communicate our belief systems to people. And I've certainly had periods of self-righteousness where I've talked to people, how dare you get an animal from a breeder? That means an animal was just euthanized and I've noticed that when you say that to somebody, if they've already made the decision to get an animal from a breeder, it doesn't change them. It's not like you can return that animal and then take back and bring that other animal that was euthanized back to life, right? Just like if you order meat at a restaurant, if you send the meat back to the kitchen, it's just wasted. It doesn't mean that the animal's life is going to be changed. 
But making these decisions has a long-term ripple effect. And so maybe you already have a dog from a breeder, but your next dog, your next animal could be some one from a shelter. Or yes. maybe you continue advocating for it, right? Maybe you spread the word more. Maybe you become more active in the community and say, hey, I didn't make this decision because I didn't know any better. And so instead of trying to change the past, I'm going to see if I can influence the future. I also want to loop back, Whitney, to one point that we touched on at the very beginning, which was some of the health benefits of having a companion animal. Of course, not only saving, literally saving a life by adopting a shelter animal or an animal from a rescue organization. There are several rescue organizations that we'll put in the show notes. We mentioned Little Love Rescue, which is our favorite here in LA. There's the Best Friends Animal Society here in Los Angeles. There's No Kill LA. And then there's also Animal Hope and Wellness Foundation. So we'll link to all of those if you want to go through a rescue organization or a no-kill shelter. Those are four of the biggest ones that we love and support here in the Southern California area. But I wanted to talk again about the benefits, the mental and emotional and health benefits. You've done a lot of studies that the simple act of having an animal on your lap and rubbing an animal or stroking an animal, having an animal close to you, be it a cat or a dog, has the ability to reduce the stress chemicals and stress hormones in your body. So if we're going through something like, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic and an economic crash, let's use those two as an example. One of the biggest things that we can do for our mental and emotional wellness through stress and anxiety, when we're going through stressful times, when we're panicking, when we have anxiety, our body gets flooded by two stress hormones. One is cortisol. The other is adrenaline. And by simply having a companion animal with you by your side, going on walks, stroking them, petting them, playing with them, it has been clinically shown in studies to reduce adrenaline and reduce cortisol, to elevate your mood, to help boost neurotransmitter function like serotonin specifically. So we know that from a neurochemical and a hormonal perspective, having a companion animal to play with, to interact with, to sleep with, to play with is really, really beneficial for your mental and emotional health. And moreover, if I may, having Bella here as a dog and taking her out you know, three or four times a day on walks is helping me get vitamin D, which we know that vitamin D3 specifically when you get it on your skin from the sun has been shown to be a mood elevating vitamin, right? It's really important for our mood and our mental health. So just by taking her out on walks every day, I'm getting that vitamin D. So just having a companion animal in your life is really, really good for your overall health. It's just been shown in study after study to do this. And we'll link to some of those studies in the show notes at wellevator.com. Thank you for bringing that up. As you were sharing that, I was looking through the blog post at Base Pause, and I thought this was a really interesting point coming back to this idea that a purebred animal may be better quality. Well, some purebred animals are known to suffer more health problems than the term that we use is mutts, right? So animals that are not purebred. And that's really interesting too. Coming back to the French bulldog, Jason, I'm curious, now that you've had this wonderful dog in your life, you've been able to witness how she struggles with breeding. And Bella, your dog, also has an interesting body type that we've often wondered was the result of breeding, right? Like, Sometimes dogs can become, I don't know what the term is, like malformed, deformed. Yeah, I was going to say malformed yeah. or something, you know, or even in Bella's case, it looks like she might have some hip problems or her body may have struggled because of the amount of times that she was forced to give birth. And that's really interesting too, that some people don't consider the long-term effects, but specifically 
looking at these animals that are bred for their appearance, like flat noses, they're absolutely cute. I often think about why do I love French bulldogs so much? I mean, when I ever say I see a French bulldog, I go a little nuts. Like I just think they're so cute. You do. You know, and I actually have that reaction to a lot of dogs and animals in general. I just love looking at animals. But I certainly have noticed how certain breeds capture my attention. And if you look at the history, sometimes they are designed to create that reaction and that actually makes them more profitable. So for you, Jason, what have you noticed with having a French bulldog and and has that changed your opinion on the breeding and how that might affect her health? Well, I mean, here's the funny thing is if we go back to this idea, and I just want to say before I comment on her health, because first of all, she's had no major health problems. She just turned uh, four years old in the spring and she hasn't had any major health problems so far. But I noticed that if I take her out for, say, an extended walk in a a day that's hotter, you know, an 80, 90, 100 degree day, her breathing gets compromised really quickly. I've taken her out on hikes here in Los Angeles. We have some amazing hiking trails and a ton of really wonderful nature. And she can't hike or walk for long periods of time because her breathing passage, she's what they call a brachiophallic dog, which is the short nasal passage and the flat face. There was actually a huge story that came out. I think this was two or three years ago that a French bulldog puppy died on a flight. So there, you have to be very, very mindful of brachiophallic dogs and cats. You know, we see those Persian cats that have the flat noses. We see pugs. We see French bulldogs. And we have to be very, very mindful of their temperature, number one. But number two, if they're in a situation that makes their breathing compromised, it can be deadly for them. So I'm always very mindful of her airflow, her breathing ability, making sure she's not in a compromised position in terms of her temperature. And again, you mentioned her body. I call her Stubbs Magoo because she's a very stubby, small, I call her a mini Frenchie because she's the smallest full-grown French bulldog I've ever seen. And that could be a result of overbreeding. It could be a result of God knows what. But if you track the history, I want to make this point, you know, this whole idea of perfectionism and eugenics and people wanting like a purebred, the origin of a French bulldog is a English bulldog and a rat terrier. So it's not even a pure breed because it's been the mix of two other breeds. Speaking on a technical perspective, the only pure bloodline, if you will, that hasn't been hybridized would be a fucking wolf would be a fucking wolf. Like That's initially how we purport. The theory is how we domesticated in our predecessors. Perhaps it was Neanderthals or ancient man, you know, our ancient humanity, was that we domesticated wolves and the bloodline of all of the various dog breeds we have now can be traced genetically back to wolves, right? So if we talk about purebred, it's like, well, Frenchies aren't even a purebred because in the late 1800s, from what I understand, looking at Wikipedia and articles, They wanted to crossbreed English bulldogs with various terriers in France. So it's a hybridized breed anyway. So what the fuck is a purebred anyway? You know, I think it's this colloquial term we use to be like, oh, well, no, he's uh, in the Westminster dog show and uh, he's a purebred and he won the triple crown and blah, blah, blah. And it's just this ego bullshit that people do to be like, well, my dog is a champion and it's uh, I paid a lot of money for it. And I know I'm being kind of a dick right now, but it's like, get out of your fucking ego. There's no such thing. Like, stop this shit. It's like having a specific breed of dog does not make you a better person. Sorry, it doesn't. Rant over. (laughs) I mean, it comes down, again, coming back to the ego side of it is uh, why are you choosing something? Are you doing it so that you can bolster your ego, so that you can increase your status? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. One of my friend's mothers breeds beautiful cat. 
uh, what kind of cats are they? They're Bengals. Yes. I mean, they are gorgeous. And her cats are insanely sweet, but in my opinion, really excessive. And part of the reason that she does it is because she enjoys, you know, how beautiful they are and their personalities, but also taking them to cat shows. And that's become a huge part of her life. And from one perspective, you don't want to take away that joy from somebody, right? I mean, if this becomes a huge source of pleasure for somebody, but on the other hand, what is the impact of that pleasure? And what is the ripple effect? As we discussed, the long-term effect of making a choice because it makes you feel good. Is that really for the right reasons? You look at the dog shows, for example, which are fun to watch, the Westminster Dog Show. But Again, it's a bunch of people parading around their purebred dogs, I think. I actually don't know as a fact, but I imagine that they're all purebreds and maybe that's part of the qualification. And so then that starts to encourage other people to want to get that exact same dog. And it's just an interesting, heated subject. And I think ultimately what we're trying to do here is to raise your awareness and give you a new perspective to make your own decision because nobody can change your mind. You are the only one that can do that. You are the only one that can take information and process it and decide what you want to do with it. And then it comes back to as well, when you receive new information that goes against your behavior, that perhaps gives you a a reason to feel maybe shame or embarrassment or judgment, that's also a great opportunity to decide what to do. Because sometimes we feel a lot of shame around our choices. And let's just say you're listening to this and you have a purebred animal in your home and now you're feeling like maybe you wish you hadn't done that. You would wish that you had adopted from a shelter. First of all, recognize that each day we're learning new information. Each day we're changing as human beings. That doesn't mean that you should love your animal any less. That doesn't mean that you should be bullied or that people should I guess bully is the main term I wanted to use, but continue to criticize you because again, we're not going to change the past here. But maybe you could donate money to Little Love Rescue or another organization out there. Maybe you can do something for one of the amazing shelters. There's so much that you can do now instead of wallowing in shame or embarrassment or turning that shame of embarrassment into a defensiveness standpoint and saying, well, I'm doing this for this. You know, you can list a a bunch of reasons and justify your behavior. And maybe you do have a good point. I mean, it would be interesting to talk to somebody who's against adoptions, right? I mean, there's got to be people out there that are strongly against it. And I'd be curious why, you know, like I'd love to bring maybe sometime, Jason, we should bring guests onto our show that disagree with us just so we can... (laughs) We can have an interesting uh, discussion or, or I don't really like to debate, but I'm curious, like, what is the other side of this? Why are some people really into breeding animals or showing off their animals? And is this something that I could possibly understand? I think that's that's always an important consideration is yeah. to get out of our own heads and our own perspectives, our thought bubbles, and really try to understand other people. I think that's one of the most compassionate things that you can do because it's easy to disagree with somebody. It's easy to surround yourself with yes people who think the same way and live the same way as you do. But it's also important, especially in cases like this, to try to relate to somebody or at least just try to listen to them, give themselves a chance to share instead of debating and arguing and trying to force them to think the same way that you do. That's an interesting point you bring up because perhaps there's an opportunity for us to understand 
some contrarian perspectives from what we believe in and our belief systems and our theories and our perspectives. You know, perhaps we can bring in people who perhaps we could bring in some flat earthers and people who don't believe climate change is real and people who believe that eating animals is necessary for the balance of our ecology or people that believe, as you said, Whitney, that having purebred animals is superior or more beneficial than shelter animals. This is a very interesting thing. Maybe we can do like a whole new pivot point here on the podcast. That's like, let's bring in contrarian perspectives and just have an open-minded discussion. I mean, that's actually super interesting. You bring that up. I'm curious to see, like, maybe we explore this and do it. See who knew where we would go. After starting the podcast off talking about National, National Shrimp Scampi, Scampi Day. Day. <laughs> you never knew that this was going to end this way, did you, Jason? Or the listener. Thank you for listening. We are not titling this episode National Shrimp Scampi Day. No, no, no. No, no, no. I have been brainstorming some different titles, so I'm curious what it'll come down to. I just wanted to end with a couple more things on the subject of National Adopt-A-Shelter Pet Day. One, I thought you would appreciate this, Jason. In that article that I was looking at, which again, we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's it's a really thorough, well-formatted article. That's why I keep bringing it up. And there was a quote in here that said that recent research has shown that the soothing sounds of a kitty can aid your body because their purrs fluctuate between 20 to 140 hertz, which is a frequency range that's been proven to be medically therapeutic. Wow. That's amazing. This reminds me of something I read years ago about the reasons why the ancient Egyptians worshipped and deified cats. And this is interesting you bring this up about the vibration and the hertz range of their purrs and that it can literally be healing on a cellular level and that on a perspective of vibration that the ancient Egyptians knew this, knew the healing properties of cats, and that's one of the reasons why they deified them in their religion. So interesting. And maybe it explains why you love cats so much. (laughs) The last point that we could have mentioned earlier, but I am just reading this now, is that adopting animals is actually much cheaper than shopping for them in most cases. And, And Jason, I know that you found this to be true because with your dog, Bella, it was really interesting. I forget how much it cost to adopt her. Was it $500? That's correct. It was 500. And as I mentioned before, you know, the average price for a pure blue puppy is between 3 and 5,000 on the open market. So that's almost 10% the cost. But also, remember how there was a bidding war for her? That was fascinating too. Will you tell that part of the story? Yeah, from what I understand because there are other people aware who are aware of the incredible rarity of an adoptable Frenchie in general. Little Love Rescue, Brittany, had told me that they received dozens of applications and people were trying to outbid each other. And I do recall that I believe one couple had either bid $2,500 or $3,000. And Brittany said to me, ultimately, and she said, look, I know that this money could be a huge, huge help for me right now as, again, a two-person independent nonprofit animal rescue organization, she said, but I'm choosing you because, well, technically she just sent me a text and said, do you want to come pick up your dog? Which was amazing. But when I got there, she said, I know you're going to take the best care of this animal. I know she's your dog. And I know it's not as much money as I could get for my organization, but I feel like you're the right choice. And that made my heart feel so good that she chose what she felt in her heart was the best option for Bella rather than taking the money. And I think as a life lesson that there are so many situations in life, whether it's a career choice, Or it's a situation like this where it's very tempting to take the money, 
even though our heart or our gut is telling us that there's a better choice elsewhere. It made my heart feel so good that Brittany chose me, even though I was nowhere near the highest bidder for Bella. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting process, all of this. And I remember that too, how we could start to fight with one another and it becomes this whole competition for an animal. I mean, this even happens when relationships break up. It's deciding who gets to keep the animal or in the case of one of our dear friends, she has two previous partners and all three of them share the dogs. They take turns with the dogs. They What's the term when you split custody? Right? Co-parent. Right. Three different people co-parent these two dogs. Yes. And it's very sweet, but they're also going to such great lengths. And then it becomes like, what food is which parent giving them and how are they taking care? I mean, it's really fascinating. <laughs> and I really hope that this episode gave the listener a lot of different things to reflect on and your relationship with animals. And I just want to come back to that point we made a few times, which is compassion is so much more than your personal choices. And I feel like compassion is at its strongest when it does not include the ego as much as possible and very challenging thing to manage. I don't know if we are ever fully egoless, but if we can just be aware of when our ego is rearing its ugly head and the judgments that can come with that. If you're listening to this and starting to feel a little bit self-righteous or getting really fired up and maybe angry, resentful, bitter towards people that you know that aren't adopting animals and you're thinking about the statistics and how many animals are euthanized, it can bring up a lot of anger. Or like I said, it could bring up some shame if you're feeling any shame right now for your decisions. And yet you continue to listen, which by the way, bravo, because I think it's easy to feel shame and then turn something off because we don't want to acknowledge it. If you continue to listen to this episode, despite any tough emotions that are coming up for you, I encourage you to reflect on that and not be too hard on yourself or hard on other people. It's also good to check in with people. Like we said, to have a open dialogue with somebody and do your best not to get judgmental or self-righteous in those conversations. Maybe you're sitting in the car with somebody listening to this and the two of you can have a discussion. Or maybe you can check in with somebody or try to approach conversations differently. As also we said earlier, we don't have the ability to change the past, but we can change how we react in the present. And that can also be changed in the future. And so if you've found yourself being judgmental towards somebody about a topic like adoption, whether it's an animal or a human being, or any subject matters that we've discussed today. Maybe it's about shrimp. Maybe you found yourself self-righteous when you see somebody eating seafood in front of you. Or it could be the opposite. Maybe you feel critical of somebody because they're choosing to eat a plant-based diet. I mean, criticism, judgment, these things come up in our lives in so many different ways from so many different perspectives. I just want to continue to encourage you to be mindful and know that that can constantly be shifting. You always have an opportunity to change the way that you speak, the way that you act, and have a more open mind. So well said, Whitney. And I do want to apologize for being a little bit uh, spiky earlier when I was going on my rant about judging people for their egoic choices, because my God, let he was without sin cast the first stone. I make a lot of ego-based choices still. I feel like I'm trying to be more mindful of that, but I just wanted to apologize if I did offend anyone who happens to go to the Westminster Dog Show or who buys a purebred animal. I did get a little bit spiky. And I think to piggyback on what you said, Whitney, it's about being in non-judgment of people and trying to move toward 
not being egoless, that's impossible as we have identities here on the planet. No one is egoless completely, but to operate from a spirit of service and non-judgment, compassion and empathy is something that I continue to strive to do. And I'm not always perfect at it and I never will be perfect at it. <laughs> and I think maybe that's the thing is realizing that we are all constantly learning, evolving and growing at our own pace and at our own rate. And to judge someone even ourselves, for not being in a certain space of awareness or compassion or proactivity, to me is akin to, say, looking at a newborn baby and going, why aren't you walking yet? It's like they're at where they're at. And so I think from a space of compassion, self-compassion and compassion to others and non-judgment, remembering that everyone, and I do believe this in my heart, that with people's state of being and their knowledge and their awareness, that everyone is doing the best they can in the moment with the knowledge and awareness and wisdom they've garnered. So I just wanted to apologize for that and remind myself that I have to believe, and I do believe that everyone is doing their best in the moment. I do believe that. I think that's really sweet of you. And it's funny because I didn't feel triggered by what you said, but it's possible somebody else was that was listening and maybe they're no longer listening as a result. We don't know. But somebody could be triggered by anything that we say, you know, and true that. True it's that. interesting in our conversation with Luke's story, which I don't think has aired by the time this episode comes out, but it will come out. And it's a good reason to encourage you to subscribe to our podcast because that way you're notified when we have upcoming episodes. So if you like this one and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. That episode with Luke's story, we touched upon the desire to try to please everybody and to apologize for ourselves and become very self-conscious about how we affect other people. And, you know, I think apology is an important, critical skill. I also think that we talked about this, was it in our April Fool's Day episode, Jason? We talked about pranks and apologies and the ego that can come in owning up for things. We've definitely discussed it before. Yes. And again, another reason we will link to that episode in the show notes at wellevator.com. We discussed a lot of things here. And one thing that I'm fascinated by is just communication. We talked about conscious languaging here and being mindful of what we say to other people, but not overly mindful to the point where we're afraid to offend somebody no matter what we do. That can also cause you to be afraid to speak. And I think it's a balance between being aware that something you may say can be controversial or offend somebody, but also owning up to how you really feel, you know, and your feelings are valid too, Jason. I think it's tricky. It's a very tricky thing. And sometimes we just need to speak the way that we want to speak and try to put out some positive energy and hope that people understand us, but know that not everybody is going to understand or relate. And some people may be offended no matter what we do or say. Yeah, this is true. And I think speaking our truth. Right. And we talked about this in the Luke episode as well of the concept, the philosophical concept of a subjective personal truth versus universal truths. And we got deep into that. It was a over two hour episode. It was almost two and a half hours, I believe. So we definitely got into a lot of aspects of philosophy and we got really deep with Luke. It was, I think, one of the deepest discussions we've had, not just in terms of duration, but content. So we talk a lot about personal truth and universal truth. And I definitely never feel the need to apologize for my personal truth. I think sometimes I've observed myself when I get passionate about a subject, sometimes I feel that passion can swing a little bit into anger and judgment, depending on the level of passion I feel. I'm aware of that for myself. So I just, I don't know, I felt the need to comment on that. But speaking of positive energy, Claudia just came on the, she came on the podcast. She's right next to the microphone right now, my black cat, Claudia. 
She's like, Dad, wrap it up. It's been yeah. almost an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what? In closing, I just wanted to talk a little bit lastly about you mentioned Whitney, you know, this deep belief system, this misnomer that a lot of people have that a shelter or a rescue animal is somehow less valuable or not as pure as a purebred or a breeder animal. You know, I remember reading when I adopted Claudia, who is a black Maine Coon cat, that the euthanization rate for black cats and black animals is much, much higher at shelters because of the superstition we have around black cats and black animals. And we could really get into deep, deep rabbit hole about racism and species. And we could go there. We're not going to go there because that'll be another hour long. But I think the superstition and the isms that we hold in our society are misplaced. There is absolutely nothing wrong with a black cat or a black dog or any black colored animal or human being. Right. But we have these deep, deep, deep generational set of beliefs and racism and speciesism and black animal isms that are total fucking bullshit. And it's like to think about this animal, Claudia, and I've had many black animals in my life. Right. And there's no difference whatsoever in their level of love and care and affection and cognizance. There's no difference at all. And I think it's just another opportunity we get to look at these deep superstitions, these belief systems, and questioning if they're true and they're real. And to me, I think that's the biggest thing that, that you know Whitney and I are certainly passionate about is on our path of growth and evolution, which hosting this podcast and giving it to you, dear listener, is a part of our growth and evolutionary process to question who we are, question our beliefs, question what our values are and what is actually true and meaningful to us. And I know over the course of my life, I have found and continue to find that a lot of things I believed were true, a lot of things that I believed were real. If I get into the origin of those or the history behind those beliefs or where they were implanted by society or family or religion or my peers, I have found dozens, maybe hundreds of things that I believe to be true that are no longer true and relevant for me. And so as truth seekers, as wielders of self-awareness, we encourage you, dear listener, to be on that journey with us. And for all of the resources... We have mentioned here in this episode, again, you can go to our website, which is wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can click on the podcast section in the global nav at the top and check out all of the show notes where we will have all of the animal rescue organizations, the shelters, the books we've mentioned, all of the resources if you want to continue on your wellness and your compassionate journey here on the planet, and all of the links to the episodes we've mentioned from previous episodes as well. So please subscribe here, share the wealth, share this with your friends. We love to see it on Instagram stories and all of the social media platforms, which again, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And you can go to our website and get all of the great free resources there. We have our eBooks there so you can continue your inner journey. And we have two amazing paid programs called Wellness Warrior Training and The Consistency Code. So with that, we thank you so much for being here with us. Whether it's your first time or your 62nd time, thank you for being with us. We love you. We appreciate you. And we also love hearing from you if you want to comment on the show notes page or send us an email. It's hello at wellevator.com or you can always shoot us a DM. We'll be back again soon with another deep dive. And with that, we bid you adieu, my friend. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.